We've been in this series on Hebrews 11, and today we end it. Remember, Hebrews 11 is about what it is to live a life of faith. A life of faith means you reach forward for the things that you can't see or touch or possess yet, but you know they're there for you because God's promised them. That's your reality. That's your goal. You're not holding on to the things of this world, things like career, possessions, reputation. Those things matter, but they're not ultimate because they're all passing away. But the things that lie ahead, those things last forever. So I want to start with this. Uh, we're actually going to start in Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, because I think that ties up the whole 11th chapter of Hebrews in a nice, beautiful bow. But first, I want to ask you to think for yourself. If someone asked you to describe the Christian life, how would you describe it? I don't mean, could you share the gospel? I hope you can do that. But I mean, if, you, if someone said, what is it like being a Christian? How is it different than being a non-Christian? How would you describe it? My fear is that a lot of Christians, too many Christians, and especially those who've been raised in church and have kind of drifted away, but even some still church-going Christians today would describe it in ways that make it sound like a, a really, really strict boarding school. You know, where you get sent away because you're not a good kid and your parents don't want to deal with you and you go and you live in this other place where they make you get up at 4 a.m. and they keep your hair cut nice and tight and you wear the same uniform as everybody else and you follow this very, very strict structure and all these arbitrary rules that seem just designed to suck all the fun out of your life. And you go to these really hard classes and you get fussed at by these professors and teachers and treated like dirt and the whole point seems to be to get you ready for some future that may or may not happen. Meanwhile, you're looking out the window and you're watching kids your own age doing their own thing. They're, as, as little kids, they're riding bikes and they're playing baseball. Later on in life, you watch them driving a car. You see them going out on dates and playing sports and, and listening to music and doing all the things that you can't do. And your consolation is, well, I know I'm suffering now. I know my life isn't any fun now, but surely this is preparing me to have more success later in life than all these kids who've played around and had fun. And so I, I say all that because, again, when you hear some Christians talk, even some preachers, they make Christianity sound very legalistic, very boring, very repressive. But okay, it's all right because you get to go to heaven when it's all over. And I want you to know that is not at all the way the Christian faith is portrayed in the Scriptures. If you've experienced Christianity that way, you're not getting that from God. You're getting that from humans. Human beings have warped God's vision, have, have perpetrated, have, have created a, a weird concoction of some Bible and a lot of human reasoning, legalism that has produced a very boring, repressive Christianity, whereas the Scriptures describe it very differently. In fact, the Bible describes it as being less like a school and more like a race. So I want to start with that, with Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with, with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy 
that is set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. My brother was a great runner. In fact, he earned a college scholarship in track and cross country. And then his daughter, my niece, who's the same age as my son, Will, she was a great athlete. Her best sport, not her favorite, but her best sport was track. And so I've been to probably more track meets than you, most likely. And I know what it's like to figure out how to have fun in the hot sun while you're watching other kids run around a circle. But for my money, the most exciting part of any track meet, in fact, one of the most exciting things you can ever be a part of, watch, or experience is the mile relay. Now, that's the old-timey name for it. They don't call it that anymore. Now that we're pretending we believe in the metric system, um, they call it the 4 by 400 And what it means is four guys or four girls, and they each run one lap around the track. And it's always the last event of every meet. It's always the most exciting event of every meet. Some years ago, four or five years ago, my hometown, Yoakum, Texas, had its best boys track team ever. So my dad and I went to Austin to watch the state track meet, thinking, hey, we could see, we could see our school win state for the first time ever. And we sat in the hot sun, we watched all these events, and the, the team was doing pretty well. Coming into the last event of the day, they were actually in first place. And we did the math, and we figured out that as long as their mile relay team finished fourth out of eight, fourth out of eight, then they'd win the whole thing. They'd win the state championship. So out come the, the guys who are first, the first leg of all eight teams. So they come out, they get ready to run. They get into their starting blocks. And if you look at these guys, they all look impressive. There's no way you could pick a, a winner out of them because they're all tall. They've all got long, muscular legs. They all have no fat on them. They just look like runners. They get down into their blocks and they wait until the gun goes up. On your mark, get set, kapow, and off they go. And the runner from my hometown, Yoakum, he gets off to a really good start. And by the time he comes around that final stretch, he's in first place. And he crosses the finish line, hands his baton to the second guy, the second leg, who takes off. But that first runner does not walk off the track and, and go uh, somewhere under the stands to get cooled off. He doesn't pull out his phone and start texting his friends. He doesn't put a towel over his head. He stays there beside the track and he yells and he yells for that second guy to maintain the lead that he worked so hard to give him. The second guy runs. He's not, as first as the, he's not as fast as the first guy, so he loses some ground. But by the time he hands it off to the third guy, Yoakum still has the lead. So now there's two runners standing there beside the track, yelling and screaming for this third guy, who's the slowest of the four, but still quite fast, still a, a terrific athlete. They're screaming and hollering for him to run his hardest, to, to put everything into it. This is the race of his life. Leave nothing on the track. By the time he comes around to the last straightaway, he's actually fallen into third, but they're still very much in the race. And he hands it off to the last man, the anchor man, the fastest guy on the team. And off he goes. Now there's three guys standing beside the track in front of the scorer's table, yelling, hollering, just screaming with all their worth. Run the fastest you can run. Don't give up. Don't slow down. At the end of the race, Yoakum didn't finish fourth. They didn't finish third or second. They won the whole thing. And it was one of the most exciting things I've ever seen. Now, I've been to a lot of sporting events, and that is an understatement. 
But that's one of the most exciting things I've ever witnessed. There were, the whole football coaching staff was there, even though none of them were track coaches. They were all jumping up and down like little girls, big old men. I mean, you had Earl and, and Bubba hugging each other. They don't, you know, they don't usually do warm, manly embraces in Yoakum, but they're just hugging each other and, and crying. It's just the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. Now, let me ask you something. You've just heard my description. You weren't even there. Does that sound boring to you? No. That's the way the Christian life is described in Scripture. Not just here in Hebrews 12, but in other places. And we'll look at some of them as we go on. But what I want you to focus on, I want you to focus on the phrase from Hebrews 12, 1. It says, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, who's it talking about, these witnesses that we're surrounded by? Well, the first word of verse 1 is, therefore, I can always tell who's been in Bible study before when I say this, but when you see the word therefore, you're always supposed to ask, what is that therefore? That's right. So it's referring to what we just read. So it's referring to all of Hebrews 11. It's saying all these heroes of the faith that we've just heard about. And by the way, by the way, remember when you watch the Rocky movies, the best part of the movie other than the final fight is always the training montage you know, when he's doing his upside down sit-ups and his one-arm push-ups and they're, they're playing Gonna Fly Now and, and you get all pumped up and, and you're sitting there with a tub of bluebell between your legs and potato chips on your, on your shirt and yet you're like, oh gosh, I got to get down and do some push-ups right now. And that's what Hebrews 11 is. Hebrews 11 is, hey, look at Abraham, look at Sarah, look at Rahab, look at Moses, look at Elijah and Elisha, look at all these people and how they lived by faith, how they strove for the things that last forever. And it's to motivate you. And now he says, all those people are our witnesses. They're watching us run. Not in the stands, but they're those runners who have crossed the finish line. And now they're standing there in front of the scorer's table, shouting for us. They've handed the baton to us. And now they're saying, run with everything you have. That's what this that's what this whole message is about, how to run the race well. So let's go backwards to Hebrews 11, verses 32 through 40, and let's put a wrap up on this whole chapter, okay? Because there's four runners in this race that I want to look at today. The first runner is this group we're about to look at, starting with verse 32 of Hebrews 11. It says, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Now this first group are people who exemplified what I call triumphant faith. Triumphant faith means faith that moves mountains, faith that sees miracles. Look at this. this. These are stories, some of them we know. I guarantee you the people who originally heard this or read this, they were all first-generation Jewish Christians. They knew these stories. They knew these stories better than you know anything. They got every one of these references. So when he mentions Gideon, they knew this is about a guy who was a self-described coward and yet led a, a quote-unquote army of 300 unarmed men to victory over tens of thousands of Midianites. 
They know the stories of, of Samson and Barak and Jephthah and how they were outnumbered, outmanned in every way, and yet won. They know that David was, was not just Israel's greatest king. He started out as a little shepherd boy with peach fuzz on his legs who defeated a giant in single combat. They know that Samuel was not just one more cranky prophet. He was the guy who managed to unify the, the rebellious and divided tribes of Israel into one cohesive nation. And when it talks about women who received back their dead in resurrection, they know that's talking about the widow in Zarephath whose son Elijah raised from the dead and the woman in Shunem who had hosted Elisha in her home, and then when her son died, he brought him back from the dead as well. And the point is not, look at the great things these people have done, because they didn't do anything. The point is, look what God did in the lives of these people. They knew, they knew that, that Daniel shut the mouths of the lions. No, actually God shut the mouths of those lions. They knew that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fire, but God was the one who quenched the power of the fire. Now, here's the thing. If you want to see triumphant faith, if you want to see miracles happen in your life, if you want to see the impossible occur, then you need triumphant faith. You need to trust in God. You need to believe in Him and obey Him even when everybody says you're a fool, even when the odds are against you, even when it would be so much easier to just go the way of the world. Those are the only people who experience miracles. But... There are people who will try to convince you that if you have the right kind of faith, your faith is always triumphant and you always get miracles and you, your sick people always get healed and, and your, your, your bank is always full. They're ignoring the whole totality of the Scripture when they say that. They're, they're cherry-picking verses of Scripture in order to present a false gospel. They're ignoring, in fact, the very words that come next. In the middle of verse 35, here's the second group of runners. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. So the second group in our race are those with overcoming faith. Their faith is not triumphant. They prayed for a miracle and it didn't happen. They prayed that the worst wouldn't happen, but it did. And yet they continued to trust. And yet they were able to overcome by the grace of God. This is the kind of faith they don't write books about typically. But it's the faith you need. Because sometimes it's not in the plan of God for you to uh, get healed of that illness or to uh, make more money this year than you did last year. And you need the faith of God. And again, these are references that he makes here. They're not, they're not theoretical. They're not hypothetical. These are references to things that actually happen. Most of these are stories we don't know. Because these are references to stories that the rabbis passed down from the prophets. These are stories of things that happen in between the Testaments when there's no biblical record. 
In fact, if you're, if you're a history buff like me, or a history nerd, I like to call it, uh, and, and you want to study up on this, there's a term, Maccabees. This is a group of people who led a successful revolution in, in between the two uh, testaments and, and, and claimed Israel for their own and defeated the pagans. But before the Maccabees came along, you can, you can go back, by the way, the reason I said that, you can go back and research that online after the sermon, okay? After the sermon. You can, you can research that. I know you got a smartphone. You're very smart, all right? Prove it later. There's a story that comes out of that time period that's referenced here in verse 35 when it says they refused release so that they might receive a better resurrection. What's that talking about? Well, the, the pagan ruler who ruled the Middle East during that time was a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus was basically Hitler, Mao Zedong, 2,000 years earlier. Just a, a man who didn't care about human life, only cared about himself. His determination, his goal was to destroy the Jewish people and erase the name of their God from the earth. Wasn't an original idea. It had been tried before. It would, have been tr it would be tried many times after. But one of the things he did was he arrested a Jewish widow, a young widow with seven sons. She arrested her and her seven sons and placed her on display and told her before all the people, you will renounce your God. You will embrace the gods of, of us, the Syrians, the, the, the people who rule over you, or else I will torture and kill every one of your sons one by one while you watch. Now imagine being a parent. And these are young men. These are, these are not grown men because they're still living with their mom. Seven of them. She gathers her sons together. and She says, boys, remember what you've been taught. We believe in a resurrection of the dead. This life isn't all there is. And we'll stand before the Lord in judgment someday. And if we're true to Him, then we'll, we'll spend eternity with Him. So I know right now it's going to seem easier to just do what these men say. But let's trust in the resurrection. Let's trust in the Lord. And then that mother had to sit and watch as her oldest boy was tortured to death. Slowly, painfully, cruelly and then the second oldest, and then right down the line until got to the youngest, probably very young. None of those boys cried out and renounced their faith. And then the mother herself went to her death because she believed in the resurrection of the dead, because she was trusting in what she did not yet have. That's overcoming faith. Doubtful that you will have to extend that kind of faith that, to that extent, but you will need overcoming faith. And what this tells us, these two groups, these two runners, they tell us that sometimes in this world, uh, a mother will have faith in God and will pray and her child will be rescued, maybe even brought back from the brink of death. And sometimes a mother prays just as faithfully and has to watch her child die. Sometimes a, a preacher like Samuel becomes a national hero and brings the people together around worshiping the Lord. And sometimes a preacher just as faithful like Jeremiah is treated like a traitor for standing up for God and watches the nation fall apart and the temple destroyed and the people carried off into exile. Here's, what, here's my point. Faith is not a guarantee of any earthly outcome. Anybody who tells you it is, get as far away from them as possible, holding onto your wallet the entire time. 
Faith does not guarantee that you will get the earthly outcome you desire. Faith is saying, I will trust you, Lord, if I triumph or if I overcome. I will trust you no matter what happens. I will trust you because I know that in the end, you win. I will trust you because you first loved me. That's what faith really is. Now, there's a third group. A third group of runners in this race. And let's look at verse 39. And all these, though commended for their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Now, what on earth does that mean? Well, first of all, when it says they didn't receive what was promised, it's talking about the people of of Hebrews 11. All these heroes of the faith. What era of history did they live in? They lived in the Old Testament era. This is being written 30 years after Jesus. What he's saying is, they are great men and women of faith. We have something they only dreamed of. They looked forward. They trusted. God's going to rescue me somehow. I don't know how. He's going to save me somehow. That's why they're in heaven today. But we get to see how we're saved. Because we live on the other side of the cross. They didn't see. They didn't know that God was going to come down in the form of a man named Jesus and die for their sins. He didn't, they didn't know there was going to be a, a resurrection on the third day after he died. They didn't know that's how they were going to be saved. We are the, the recipients of something better. We get to see what is the cause of our salvation. We received what was promised. They died without receiving it. And then it says, apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Now, that's confusing language, especially because we hear the word perfect and we think flawless. But in this context, it means complete. It means finished. What it's saying is they ran their race and they ran it well and they're receiving their reward, but the race isn't done. They handed the baton off knowing that this race isn't finished. Moses died knowing the people weren't even in the promised land yet. David died knowing that the Messiah hadn't come yet. Jeremiah preached and prophesied, died knowing there was something better, a a new covenant between God and man still coming. The race wasn't finished yet. They handed the baton off to you and me. So the third group of heroes is us. That's what I want you to see. We're the recipients of this message. We're the ones that they're yelling at right now and saying, run, run, what are you doing? Don't dawdle, don't stop, don't get distracted, run. Keep your eyes on the finish line and run. This is not the only passage that talks in those terms. I want want to show you 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Okay, how many of you can remember gym class or maybe off-season in athletics when the coach would just say, because, you know, coaches, just like all teachers, they get to a point where they're like, I'm, I'm just done. I've got no more ideas. So they'd be like, okay, just, just go out on the track and run. You ever, you ever experienced that? Coaches, you know what I'm talking about. Just run, just run, just get out there and run. Did anybody run their hardest on that day? Of course not. All the other kids would make fun of you if you ran your hardest on that day. No, you were just kind of shuffling along, hoping to get it over with. What 1 Corinthians 9.24 is saying is, this is not that day. This is not the day where you just shuffle along. 
Now is the time to run your hardest. This is a real race. Lives are at stake. Humanity is at stake. The, the world is at stake. Run with everything you have. Run like you want to win. This is the race of your life. Nothing else matters as much as this. Your resume won't matter on the day of your judgment. Your reputation among people won't matter on the day of your judgment. Your possessions doesn't matter. It's all going to burn up. What will matter is, did you run the race? Did you run it hard? Did you, did you finish strong? Now you might say, Jeff, that's a lot of pressure. Uh, I, I'm, I'm just not that good a runner. I, I'm, I'm not that great a person. I, I, let me give you two words of encouragement, okay? You're going to like these. Number one, the size of your faith doesn't matter. Only the subject of your faith does. See, a lot of us make excuses whenever we hear a message like this and we say, okay, well, that's for other people. That's for those varsity level Christians. I'm more of a JV level Christian because I don't have strong faith. Whatever it took, I just wasn't born with it. I, I just, I can't understand scripture. I, I've just, it just never came naturally to me. I just, I'm not, I don't have strong faith. And Jesus hears that. And his response is Matthew 17, 20. If you have faith the size of a grain of mustard seed, then you can do the impossible. Nothing will be impossible for you. It's not the size of your faith that matters. It's who your faith is in. Your faith can be tissue paper thin. It can be weak as a kitten. And you can still do impossible things because you're trusting in the right one. Jesus Christ is the one that matters. And that's the second point. You're not the hero of your story. Jesus is. And you ought to breathe a big sigh of relief. We're not the hero of our own story. If we were the hero, our stories would all end sad. But Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the one. You know, I, I've pitched this whole passage as being a, a relay race with the starting block as being triumphant faith and then handing off to overcoming faith. And then to us, the people of our generation, trying to carry that, that baton forward and carry on the work of the gospel. But you know who the, the, the anchor man of the race is? And that's Jesus Christ. And that's very good news. Because it means that if you falter, if you pull a hamstring, if you get distracted, if you drop the baton, if you run out of your lane, Stay in your lane, bro. If you don't, if you get messed up, Jesus is able to pick up the baton and win the race anyway, because that's who he is. You remember the last words Jesus spoke before he died? He's hanging there on the cross, he pushes himself up against those nails. He breathes in one last breath and says, tetelestai in Greek, which means it is finished. That's the sound of a runner crossing the tape in first place. There's nothing more to do, Jesus says. I have won. And you might say, well, then if he's going to win the race no matter what, why do I need to run so hard? It's not because he's depending on you. It's because you get the honor. You and I get the honor of being a part of something that really matters. We get the honor of running a race that really matters. Everybody's run. I'll, I'll give you a secret. Everybody's running some kind of race. It may be a race to see who can level up on their favorite video game. It may be a race to see uh, if, if they can get this person to love them. It may be a race to see if they can reach the top of their profession. And all of that is going to go away. But 
if your race is, I am running the race of pursuing Jesus Christ with everything I have and making His name known through my life, then you will live a life that when you get to the end of it, you will rejoice. And you'll stand before God like everyone does on their judgment. You will stand before God with a different mindset than most other people. You'll stand before God with a heart of gratitude that you are saved by His grace alone and a heart that says, I am glad to offer you the life that I lived. Thank you, Lord, that I lived a life that mattered. I had this short window of opportunity to run this race and I didn't run it perfectly, but I ran it. And I didn't waste that chance. Jesus is the hero of the story. So when the odds are against you, when you get discouraged, some of you I'm sure are right now so discouraged you feel like you want to walk off the track and just get under the stands and fall asleep. But just remember that He's the one that walked on water. He's the one that stilled the storm. He's the one that walked out of a tomb, His own tomb. Who does that? He's also the one who carried your griefs and your sorrows and your guilt up the side of a hill called Golgotha and died there for your sins so that you could have eternal life. He's done it. So run like you're going to win. He's the anchor man. The pressure's off. So run with all you've got. Not because you're afraid, but because you're full of joy. Not because you think the world's going to blow up in, into a supernova if I don't do this, because Jesus has got that. No, because you want to be there when you see people saved. You want to be there to hear somebody say, I'm ready to receive God's gift of eternal life. Because you want to know that you did everything you could for the cause that matters. Run in such a way that you can win. Run with endurance. And when you do that, I've got a secret for you. When you do that, it doesn't make you proud. And that's one of the bad things about sports or any other arena of accomplishment is the better you are, the more arrogant you tend to become if you're not careful. But running the race of Jesus Christ has a way of just keeping you humble. Because it takes the gospel. It takes repentance. And so people don't walk away from you if you're running the race the way you should. People don't walk away saying, man, what a remarkable person. No, they walk away saying, what an amazing Savior that person follows. What an, what an, uh, an incredible God they know. I want to know that God too. So let me just ask you as we close. Is your experience of Christianity more like a boring, repressive boarding school where you get hazed every day? Or is it more like a relay race where you're running for something that really matters? And you've got a cloud of witnesses calling for you and shouting for you and urging you on. What would it mean to go from that kind of Christianity to this kind, the, the biblical kind? What would it take for you to get back on the track running the way you should? For some of you, maybe you've never been there. Maybe you didn't know there was a race to be run. You thought it was just, I show up on Sundays, I, I endure a sermon. That, that's what I call living with endurance, right? Enduring this 30 minutes. I get through that and then my, do, my duty's done and I go and I live my life. But maybe today you found out that Jesus died to bring you something more, something different, something greater. And today can be the day that you step forward and say, I'm ready to start running that race. I'm ready to follow Him. And this can be the, the first day of your new life. Maybe for some of you, it's, it's, a, it's just a testimony that I can remember when the, there was a time when I was running the race with all my might, but I've been under the stands now for years. I'm ready to get back on the track. 
And maybe for some of you, it's a matter of discouragement. I just needed, I just needed to hear this. I needed to be reminded what's really important in life because I was getting ready to give up. Maybe for some of you, it means I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repent of some area of rebellion in my life. There's this person I need to forgive. There's this person I need to apologize to. Maybe it's uh, I need to start obeying God in some specific area of my life. Maybe in my sexual relationships. Maybe in my finances. I need to start being generous toward God with the things that he gives me. Maybe, maybe there's some other area of rebellion in your life. Maybe as you're, you're a teenager and you know you're making your parents miserable. and You can't run the race if you treat your parents like dirt. You're supposed to honor them. Who knows? Maybe, maybe you're a person who knows, I, I've been serving Christ, but it's just been me and him. I need to get involved in Christian community. I wasn't supposed to run this race alone. I need to get involved in a life group and, and not just show up for Bible study, but actually invest in others' lives. Maybe it's, I know that God created me for some specific ministry, but I haven't been pursuing it. I've got a mixture of gifts and, and, and abilities and resources. I'm not using them for his glory, but I need to start. Whatever it is, get back on that track. Start running the race. There's a, a whole group of people who've given their lives to the cause who are urging you on, and there is a Savior, a triumphant Savior, who can't wait to celebrate with you. So let us run with endurance the race that is set before us.